In November of this year, 2021, I interviewed the one and only Dave Loggins, one of the most gifted singers and songwriters that's ever been out there. Besides putting a ton of music into the world that people remember their lives by, Dave has been my friend, collaborator, and mentor for decades. This episode is extremely and personally special to me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did having the conversation. Hello, this is Judy Rodman. You're listening to All Things Vocal Podcast. This is the audio version of the blog you can find at judyrodman.com. It would take far too much time on this podcast to list the artists who've cut Dave Loggins' songs. Known as the Bridge Buster by fellow writers, he's mostly referred to by Nashville's Music Row as just Loggins. Some of my fondest career highs have been singing on his demos through the years. Many of those songs were cut by other big artists and became huge chart toppers. But I'll let you in on a secret. If you hear Loggins sing the demo he produced, you really don't want to hear any other version, no matter how big a hit it was. CMA Songwriter of the Year, inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, a number one smash hit artist himself, CMA Duo Award winner with Anne Murray, nominated multiple times for Grammy Awards, and acknowledged by John Lennon. Those are some of the career accolades he's received. But the story of his life is woven through with threads of musical, lyrical, and vocal influence on others, including yours truly. I invite you to join us and hear some of those stories. So, on to the interview. Welcome to All Things Vocal, my dear friend Dave Loggins, and I am so happy to have you on. Pleasure to be here. And like I was telling you, I started thinking about this interview and getting ready for it while I was listening to my favorite Dave Loggins song, which is... Get right going. That's just always been a magic song for me, and Don Williams did do a good job of it, but the real magic for me is your guitar playing and you're doing the background vocals, plus that four chord you start with. It's just one of those things I'm trying to figure out what, which way to go. You, you were raised in the mountains of East Tennessee in a small town. Yeah. And so what in the world led you to start songwriting? Well, I'll go back to when I was about 13. Mm-hmm. I, w- I was actually trying to write a song then because I was listening to records all the time on my little stereo, you know, the 45s that had the spindle, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it dropped down one at a time. Mm-hmm. I had tons of those 45s, and I'd listen to them all the time. And if a new record, I heard, heard a new record, like a new Beatles song, uh, I'd go to the record shop and order it if it wasn't there. <laughs> so you didn't read tons of songwriting books? No, I, I, you can't really write a handbook on songwriting because it's, it's an individual taste. It's sort of like that four chord bouncing off and going to the one. Mm-hmm. So I listen to records every free moment, you know, every hour, for hours at night. I do my homework, eat some dinner, and then go upstairs in my room, close the door, and uh, get into uh, this... I don't know, I developed some trance-like state that you get in because you're studying mm-hmm. these. And unbeknownst to me, my subconscious was studying the structures of the songs and the lyrical rhymes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did they use? How did they, how did they come up with? I, try, I used to try to guess what rhyme they're going to have, you know? Yeah. 
So after doing that for a few years, I just decided, that, uh, and having heard Donovan, you know, the old Donovan players, mm-hmm, sure. and stuff like that, they had this finger-picking way uh, that they played. Yeah, when did you start playing guitar? Because, my gosh, your touch on the guitar is just masterful. 19. 19? Huh. Yeah, I was 19. I, I got a late start, Judy. But that's not the that's not the half of it. I went and bought a guitar. Actually, I, I laid it away because I didn't have six hundred bucks mm-hmm. <laughs> for for a Martin guitar back then. Back when you could lay away, yeah, yeah. And so I laid this beautiful Martin guitar away, and I paid like a a hundred bucks a month, I think. And after about three months, <laughs> I got I got tired of going out there and looking at it, you know. So I just uh, saved up money, paid it off. Oh yeah. I got home and. It hit me that, because I didn't know anything about instruments or I didn't know anything about songwriting, but I was driven to do that, um, almost like you're chosen, you know? Yeah. I really, I think in a way I was. It was your river to swim in, for sure. Yeah. I got the guitar home and I started playing. This is funny, too. I started playing with these guys, you know, and put uh, somebody on that did the finger picking thing, and I... I, I thought, well, I can't. What is that sound? And it, what it was, the guitar was right-handed, and I was playing left-handed. You know? oh so, I, check this out. I had to take the strings off and turn them upside down. And I didn't know anything about a bridge and a nut or anything like that. Wow. I forgot you're left-handed. Yeah. The action on this guitar was high. And I, I didn't know that it just hurt your fingers, you know. But that's something... You have to get by or you don't play. That's all there is to it. There's a lot of things. Keep that in mind as we go along. You either do this and that or you don't play or you don't write. Mm-hmm. You don't get anywhere because uh, ultimately songwriting gets hard, you know, because as a kid, about 20, 21 years old, I started writing and I'll never forget the 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 frustrations of laying on the bed with a legal pad and I would get to the point where I would just weep, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it was, it was something trying to hatch, you know, I started to say that's the closest you'll ever feel to labor pains, Dave. It is, mm-hmm. it is literally. And uh, so, but finally when I, it came out and I wrote this, my first song and then the second one came and, third and fourth song. My brother lived here in Nashville. He was in pretty high up in the insurance business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got this little mattress and I put it in his bedroom. I put it beside his bed and it's sort of a single mattress. And I slept on that for mm-hmm. a good while. Mm-hmm. And this is the fall of 71. And uh, so as 72 rolled around, I was working on this song called Pieces of April. Pieces of April means moments, you know, moments that I shared with somebody, and I just didn't want to call them moments, you know. So I, I don't know how I found Pieces of April, but I did the thing that most people have told me about songwriters, you know, back in Christopher's time. Mm-hmm. People would walk down 16th Avenue with these tar case. And I thought, wow, that's weird. And I, I don't see me ever doing that. And I did it. I did. It. <laughs> I swear I did. One day I just got tired of waiting. And I, I, I walked in the 16th Avenue and went into Capitol Records of all places. Wow. And I asked her 
I said, Secretary, does anybody here listen to songs? And this guy heard me upstairs, and he came out and said, yeah, I'll listen to them. So I went up and, and unpacked my guitar, high strings and all, and, and <laughs> played him four songs, and he, he just went crazy. He said, man, I, I, you, you got something. And I thought, what's he talking about? See, <laughs> I was... I was so naive and so unaware. You of had anything. no reference point, did you? No, yeah. no, no. And he says, how many songs you got? And I said, you heard them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I said, I've got an idea for another one I'm working on. <laughs> we went down around the corner there to Kretzel's office and MCA Music. And uh, he Jerry signed me to Jerry an exclusive. Crutchfield. Okay. Yeah, uh-huh. they signed me to an exclusive publishing agreement. And I'm, uh, I think I'm 21, going on 22. Been playing guitar for like two years, and so, so I'm still laboring over it, you know. So they call Vanguard, which was a record label that that signed folk acts back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, long and short of this conversation, they got me a record deal on Vanguard. So we cut those four songs, and then I had. Pieces of April was the fifth song I ever wrote. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was the fifth song I ever wrote. And then I had mm, four more. So we went in with uh, Briggs and Dave Briggs and Norbert Putnam and all these great musicians Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and made a folk album called Personal Belongings. It was uh, the first thing I'd ever done. Mm -hmm. So off of that came Pieces of April that that Chuck Negron heard on an underground station in L.A., he was mm-hmm. lead singer of Three Dog Night. With the guy with the mustache in the middle. Three Dog Night, lead singer, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, so, so he gets uh, his road manager, somebody, to get a copy of this and get it up to him. And the next thing I knew, they recorded a song, and the word got to me that it was coming out as a single. <laughs> uh, Judy, listen, I did not know what to think. I started to say, "What did you have any idea what that would mean?" None. Yeah. I, what What do I do now? Do I jump up and down, or because <laughs> it was the first cut I'd I'd ever had. An auspicious know? beginning. <laughs> <laughs> it was the first cut, in the back, and then Three Dog Night was probably one of the biggest rock and roll bands in the world. Yeah, it was. So uh, yeah, and and he they did another song called "To the World Ends." about a year after that of mine that Chuck did, which went to about 11, 10, 11. But, all, but the interesting thing to me always was on that first album, mm-hmm. there were a couple of other people, Glenn Campbell. I got two or three cuts off that album. My that God. was the thing. That's the thing that really stuck with me because I couldn't even comprehend the Three Dog Night thing, you know. Yeah. But the, there's three people recorded songs off that album. I said, my God, that's the first songs I've ever written. I wonder what I can do now. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of, instead of getting caught up in all of the ego things, you know, first of all, I was not liked around town at that point. And please come to Boston was a big blow to, to my whole career in one way. Really? yeah, because, you know, in town, this is a country music town. And I respect that immensely. But that was the days when crossover was probably not, not a good word. <laughs> no, they weren't, they weren't a good word. And you, you, sh- you couldn't be from Nashville and make pop music. Yeah. And yeah. this is a, I was nominated for a pop mail. Well, first of all, that was 71 too. 
we did that album through Dog Night. In 73, I uh, wrote Please Come to Boston with chords that I'd never even played before. <laughs> and and I was one, I kept wondering because there was this beautiful, glowing feeling coming came over me, you know, like uh, a godlike feeling. And yeah. I said, Here, go ahead and play. I'll move, I'll move your fingers. Okay. Yeah. Oh, we talked about that. You felt like there really was something that came into the room when you were writing that. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt about it. I never saw it again, but I, I got some serious information from that. <laughs> Briggs. David Briggs. Yeah. And uh, Billy Sanford played guitar. Steve Gibson played acoustic oh, with me. Oh, wow. We sat right in front of each other. Steve was new in town. I was in Memphis while you were doing this. I had moved to Memphis in 71. Yeah, I didn't move to Nashville till 1980. So this was... Well, that's why I couldn't yeah. find a good background singer. You, know? <laughs> you had to do your own. <laughs> yeah, I was, on my, I, I was on my own, Judy. I was yeah. out there by myself, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Stephen, got, he got a lot of work from that. Anyway, the record comes out and it's a monstrous, monstrous hit. You know, number, it's the number one record and easy listening, like two in the pop charts or something. Yeah. But the big deal was I was nominated for a male vocal performance for the at the Grammys. Yeah, at the Grammys. With Elton, with Elton John, Stevie Wonder, <laughs> Harry Chippen, oh, and somebody else. And uh, oh, wow. Billy Preston, I think it was. Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. So I went to New York and I hadn't seen the Grammys were about twice, so I didn't know that much about what it was, you know. And wow. they're in, introducing this male vocalist of the year. And so they, they pan the camera on the, the acts if they can find them. Mm-hmm. And, and sitting down for me about eight rows on the inside seating area was John Lennon. John and Lennon. I thought, <laughs> yeah, I thought, oh, my God, there's a beetle here. And after Stevie Wonder won, thank God, uh, <laughs> Final one, I wouldn't know, I wouldn't have known what to do. You know <laughs> what I do. I mean, what is this? Oh, you won. You were there. You just being there and nominated with that group. You won. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, there's like thirty five hundred vocal performances, that, and there's a lot of people that sing a lot better. You know. Well, I'd beg to differ about that, but I know what you mean. There were a lot of people <laughs> but, with big names that you were right in the middle of. Yeah, right in the middle of big names is a well said term because mm-hmm. I went backstage to take pictures. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was talking to Andy Williams, who's a buddy of mine, mm-hmm. and he'd cut a couple of songs I wrote. He cut pieces of April and a couple other things. Really? So we became friends when he'd come in and out of town, you know, and he'd check with me on songs. And and we're standing there t- starting to take a picture, and in walks John and Yoko. And he said, Let me, could we get in the picture? I said, sure. <laughs> so my heart was about to beat out of my chest because I was standing Next to a guy, he he put Yoko beside me and then John. And I've got mm. a picture I'm looking at right now that's about 20 by 30 of, of Lennon and Yoko, me and Andy. Mm. Oh, and John's God. got his hand on my shoulder. He's telling us, he says, and I'm telling you, tell you what's happening. The photographer says, John, could you have let Loco uh, smile a little bit? He's, he puts his hand on my shoulder. He says, Loco? Loco, <laughs> and they, they just cracked. Andy, Andy's laughing. She just cracked us up, man. Loco, she, she never, she never cracks it. Smile and anything. Still did. He said, Loco, yeah. Loco, could you smile, maybe? Anyway, 
after the picture was taken, John starts to walk off, and I, I walked over to him, and uh, I said, John. And I, he turned around, and I shook his hand, and I said, thank you. Thank you for the, all the inspiration that you, that you guys meant to me and without trying to garm you or something. <laughs> and he said, no, no, that's okay. And he said, just do your music. That's all, really all that matters. He said, that's really all that matters. Perfect. Just, it, and it is. Really, it is. Yep. I understood what he meant in the 80s, you know. But this was 70, 75, so I didn't have much of a handle on it. <laughs> but uh, first of all, I was standing there with the guy who started the Beatles, who was the responsible for everybody's hair growing over their ears in the exactly. world. Exactly, exactly. He'd done everything that the Beatles had done, except uh, I don't think he'd recorded Imagine yet. <sighs> Man, he looked at me in the, in the eyes, Judy. He was like, I could feel this guy for 50 miles in either direction. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was, it was all inspiring. And that, and that came from a song that your producer wasn't even sure was done from what I, I remember the story going around that, uh, that he, he was taking it to a di- couple of different people asking them what it needed after it was done in the, in the version that, that was Crutchfield. Became this big hit. Crutchfield wasn't sure it was quite done. The thing that's interesting is that sometimes you don't know. You don't, like these legendary songs, you know the song is good, but the rest of it is kind of out of your hands. And the fact that it became the legendary song that it did, you, Crutchfield, their label, nobody could have predicted but you just knew it was a really good song, and you knew when it was done. Well, it was eventually cut by David Allen Coe, Joan Baez, Garth Brooks, Kenny Chesney, Lee Greenwood, Tori Amos, Glenn Campbell, John Barry, and Jimmy Buffett. Oh my goodness! And that's just that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? Of and Reba and Tammy and so on and so forth. <laughs> but I I, uh, I appreciate that. I really really loved it. Oh, Willie Nelson also. And Willie Nelson cut it. Wow. Yeah. I saw Willie at his golf tournament one time, uh-huh. and he asked me what I thought. And I thought, you did a marvelous job. And he did. I had about four songs cut by Willie. Wow. Anyway, we I, I go to New York. I get a call from uh, the publishing company to come to New York. So I said, wow, this must be a big deal. So I flew up there and went into Sal Kiani office. I mean, he was the president worldwide of the whole thing tried to talk to me about i should call this song rambling boy or something like that oh. i said no i said no i said check this out this was what i i thought and knew about music then i said no it's it's called please come to boston because that's what came to me first yeah. and that and i'm the one who wrote the song yeah. and that's gonna stay like that <laughs> i can go to another publisher if you like and it said, well, we'd just like to have a memorable title. Trust me, this will be memorable. <laughs> you, you, it's the first line of the song. I, and then I told him, I said, go ask Paul Simon. Get him on the phone. Call him. Ask him why he called the boxer the boxer. Mm-hmm. And the boxer's only mm-hmm. said one time in mm-hmm. the middle of the song. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares. Mm-hmm. Just as long as they know the title of the song they want to hear. Right. So uh, I upset the group up there pretty well. You knew, though, the, these instincts are why you've become who, you, who you've become. Well, I knew they were right. My instincts were good, yes, and, and they grew. 
people I mean, it grew to where people wanted to change a couple of uh, lyrics and <laughs> one of my tunes. I said, no. Kenny Rogers wanted to change uh, a line. I said, no. It's it's right like it is if you just listen to it another time. Yeah. It's right. It's like it is. And uh, somebody wanted to change. I had virginity in a song one time. And they they went like, uh-oh, we can't, we can't say that in country music. Well, you can do this, so ask Conway Twitty. Uh, you know, I left your love all over the walls and and, and uh, threw the sheets, hung the sheets up there to hide it and something like that. I don't know. <laughs> this was a song about a young boy growing up, and he turns 13, and the hormones hit him, you know. Mm-hmm. So he started learning how to talk the girls out of the virginity. That's all it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that seems to be a... That's a word that they, they just won't, won't go for. I said, okay, fine. I'll, I'm leaving it, but I won't say it again. <laughs> <laughs> I won't have to. That's the only time I need to use You know, Dave, I think sometimes people that don't understand the art of it, they want to yes. they want to be able to control it. So they try to figure out some logical thing that makes sense. And they get this thing that logically makes sense instead of this magic thing. And I think that happens a lot when the industry is run by people that are really not musicians. Well, the, the record companies are ran by, by uh, mm-hmm. business people. Mm-hmm. Right. Publishing companies are ran by people who are frustrated musicians, one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, I want you to tell me about forming the writing group that became a hit machine. Uh, the MCA Music Publishing Building on Music Row in the 70s and 80s. All right, tell me about that. Okay. First of all, can I, can I get there from here? Yep, yep. Just a couple of things. I made a couple of albums to finish the 70s out, but then nobody nobody ever heard with Brent Mayer and a great section, which I'll give you a couple. I told you about that. And I kept hearing this thing that Lennon told me, you know, mm-hmm. just do your music and nothing else really matters. And so from 80 to 93, I said, I just had my head down and I went straight at it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it was about 17 straight number one records. Anyway. Wait, hold on. 17 straight number ones. Yeah. So something like that. Yeah. You were songwriter of the year. And from what I understand, uh, it's like 1996. So you had six number ones one year, and you didn't get it, and you had seven number ones the next year, and you got it. That's because I, I was angry. <laughs> Troy Seals, beat, beat, he, beat, he beat me on points because Morning, morning Desire didn't come out in time. Oh, and so he beat you. me on points, and I got so upset, <laughs> I went back up in the tower, and I never came down. <laughs> Until <laughs> you had seven. That's right. Seven number one records. Jeez. I became obsessed. You you become obsessed with music very easily. Oh yeah. And you become obsessed with the. Uh, I wasn't so much with awards. It was just that was something I wanted to win because it signified something. You know that songwriter of the year thing. Mm-hmm. But to get there, the first thing I did, I wrote the master's theme. For all those people listening that their husbands or boyfriends play golf, the Masters in Augusta. Yeah, I went down to see my band, and, and my friend of mine and I walked around the golf course. And I, I stopped, and I, I started looking at how beautiful this was, and that flowers and the people. And it's, it's just the prettiest sight on earth for golf, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. a big golf fan. Mm-hmm. So I asked the head of CBS, you ever thought about writing a piece of music for this? 
He says, we have, but we can't find one. We like, I said, well, I'm him. Hey, y'all watch this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you have to talk to those higher ups to get their attention, you know, uh-huh. I said, well, can I send you a demo? Cause I finished it now. And I'm, I'm a man to do this. I promise you. He says, oh, okay. I sent him a demo and he, he calls me. He said, Hey Dave, I like this man. What did it cost me to do it? I said, I'm going to guess about three, $4,000. I don't want anything for it, but I'll need to pay the musicians in the studio on tape and uh, strings and stuff that we've got <laughs> laid out. So he says, go for it. So I did. I wrote that song, put the strings on it with my canna's arrangements and butt plan bass. And so I knew you couldn't use drums. That'd be the wrong thing for such a quiet little golf course, but you could use strings, mm-hmm. you know, up and down strings. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a song called Augusta, the master theme, and you can hear it. You can hear it on the YouTube. Mm-hmm. That started me into a massive writing thing. You know, I just got so pumped up. I'm still carrying Lennon around, but I, I got so pumped up. I went back, and it was almost like this was an order, Jude. <laughs> I went back to Nashville, and I wrote Roll on 18-Wheeler, and wrote 18-Wheeler and Wheels in the same day or two you know mm-hmm. uh, so there was a whole thing for me going on and i ran into don slitz and at the time he he was talking about going home to durham and he said i can't do any, anything more what anything better than the gambler he said yeah man i think i'm anything better than that i said you probably never will i know because i don't need police come to boston i won't ever write anything like that let's write some stuff around it so we can circle the wagons and protect this situation. And he said, okay. So I took slits up to MCA. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Jerry signed him immediately, you know. Mm-hmm. Jerry Crutchfield was the head of MCA Music. Yeah. Right. And gave him a co-pub deal. That's in 82. Mm-hmm. And so we were hooking it, man. Uh, the we, first song we wrote, finally, Johnny Cash and Jim Carter <laughs> did as a duet. It's called Where Do We Go, Right? Uh-huh. I'm watching Austin City Limits one night, and there they are. And he plays this song. He says, this is a Dave Loggins song, which June and I really love. And I said, yeah, but I love it, too. Johnny Cash was one of my idols, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I got slitzed, and I'm thinking, I'm sitting outside smoking a cigarette because I smoked back then. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, and I don't think like most people, I have an overview of, like, of everything that's going on, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm looking down the 17th Avenue, and I'm thinking, if this was a writer's building, and I had about seven or eight people, <laughs> and that's that's after having, I had about four hits before that, you know, in the late 82. So Don and I decided that if we had a writer's building, I could make it a writer's building mm-hmm. and get three or four more people or five, we could... I did it like the Japanese do. First of all, Leeds Lee came to town, and I had lunch with him and Jerry, and I put myself in a, in deep water. Of course, I like to do that, and I was always happy, <laughs> because it makes you respond, you know. Mm-hmm. You have to come up to the plate when you tee it up like that. Yeah. I said, I'll tell you what we can do. If you give me that the house, and let me make it a writer's building, and I'll head it up and get the writers I want, I'll hand you that piece of glass in three years. Oh, wow. You said Promise that. You. Oh, my gosh. I said it to it right then, then and there. Audacious, for sure. 
Leads us laying down the table and he says, three years. I said, it's three years. 86 or so, we'll, we'll hand it to you. I promise you, I'll walk out there and give it to you. So this was, this has gone into 83. So I got Russell. J.D. came over there. J.D. Martin. J.D. Martin, okay. Yeah, and I ran into Lisa Silver at a at post office. Who I sang with a lot, yeah. Jeez, mm-hmm. me and Don, Don and I could uh, do wonders with the fiddle, you know, around. And so I I hired her and gave her so much money a month, a year, a year or something like that. Mm-hmm. And she she worked wonders. Anyway, I got to the 40-hour week song. Mm-hmm. This is where the Bridge Busters comes in. Yes, I was telling Dave before our interview that I'm going to ask him about that because I knew people used to call him the Bridge Buster. <laughs> I had about six people, yes, and, and a plugger. I just needed one plugger. You only need one. You need to send one song out, and it needs to be a hit. That's all. Oh, and we, and we were all in the studio, and I said, now, here's what I'm going to do. You see up here, see that bar where they say we were supposed to can't go over? That bar is the highest thing about publishing that you can get. And I reached up and tore that bar in half, <laughs> it, it thoroughly, right, and slammed it to the floor. Understand what I'm talking about? I'm talking about going up to the ceiling. <laughs> and so everybody, everybody was all in on it. And so... Long story short, we took over the building, and I was heading it up, and i been to Japan, so I started making it go round and round in a circle, uh-huh. right? Like there's a oneness that was created out yeah. of chemistry. Yeah. To get the right people, you create a oneness, and it just circles. The energy just forms, and it just circles and gets that much more powerful. Oh, and then I told everybody, listen, I want everybody to let every other publishing company in town worry about us. Because they started worrying about what we were doing. Let them worry about us, and we will worry about us. And that's enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have to worry about them. Mm-hmm. So we started slamming doors on everything, man. I'd go into the studio, and J.D. would be playing something. I'd say, what's that? He says, uh, I don't know. He says, we're playing. We'll play it again. Because that sounds like a verse. Sounds like the verse. So he did. And uh, before you know it, we were going, one day love will find its way to your eyes. <laughs> which was Reba, a uh, hit for Reba McIntyre. So I was watching TV one day, and they were laying off uh, all these auto workers in Detroit. And it had kids. It's near Christmas. They had kids and uh, families. And so I just looked at them. They're so, so depressed, man. I said, I'm going to talk to them. So I got to talk to them. So I went in, and I said, hello, Detroit auto workers. Let me thank you for your time. You work a 40-hour week for a living. Like that. Just to send it on down the line. Yeah. So I, I write the choruses in the first half of it, and I said, thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to cover everybody. <laughs> then, hey, Don. And he cracks the door and says, yes. <laughs> I said, well, you just, you just outside. He says, I just wait my turn. I said, oh, okay. That's, that's how close we were, though. Yeah, man. yeah. He, he came in. Now, this is how good we got, Jude. He came in and started staring out the window, and I said, I need, to, I need a verse. For, and we played him what we had. And I said, I need you to fill that spot with everybody in the country. Can you do that? He said, and he looked out the window, and his, he just, his eyes set, and he reeled off that, uh, this is for the one who swings a hammer. Bring it oh home the gosh. next. For the one out in the warehouse. Bring it in the mail. 
for the waitress, the mechanic, the policeman on patrol, for everyone who works behind the scenes. And I said, with the spirit, you can't replace with no machine. <laughs> and and but he said that in one breath, and it was all all dead on right. And I thought, my God, we're wow. on to something. So we did that, and then he he we he was back in his room, and I go get some coffee, and I come back, and I hear you came along, unpromised too late, and I opened down the door, I said, you need a bridge in that song. He said, well, I don't need a bridge. I said, you do. Trust me. I know, you know, I know what it is. You want me to play it for you? He said, <laughs> he said sure. Of course, we had egos that just, you know, <laughs> sure. bantered back and forth. <laughs> and we were competitive as could get, but we were all in for each other. Yeah. So I go in there and I said, don't play me alone. One promise too late. I can't say that I'm sorry that I met you, but I know that I never will forget you. Where were you? And I said, "That's it's a four sort of a four bar bridge." And Don looks at me, and he knew it was right. He knew it was right. <laughs> he said, oh, "Okay." I said, "All right. If I need me, I'm, I'm, I'll be next door." <laughs> but it, it was so much fun. And then yeah. JD, I kept I kept in a room for. Uh, he wanted. He kept wanting to go get coffee and cigarettes. And no, you sit right there and play. <laughs> and then we wrote. Uh, just as long as I have you. We wrote a couple of hits and five, six songs in a week, just keeping them in that room. So he knew when he came in in the morning, he brought a lunch because he mm. wasn't getting out. He was not getting out. <laughs> and we used to go to lunch. All of us used to go to lunch together, all six of us. And we'd just have lunch and we'd talk about who's got what. Mm-hmm. And then I'd write with Russell Smith. And uh, I'd say, I got an idea called, uh, and I, I sort of got a course. Just see what you think about this. I want to hear a heartbeat boom, <laughs> in the darkness. Oh, and Garth Fundus, Garth Fundus got wind of what we were doing. Yeah. He starts coming in, hanging out. Yeah. And so he comes in one day, and I'm putting, we got a good fire going down with the acoustic guitar. And I walk in the control room. He says, uh, I'd cut that on Don Williams right now if we hadn't finished. <laughs> I said, when are you going to cut again? He said, not till next year. Okay, will you, cut, will you say the same thing? For the first half of that, and I'll give it. I'll let you hold it. He said, "Sure." Wow. And we'll cut it next. I said, "Okay, it's yours. Bye." <laughs> and I gave it to him, and, and you waited next, for him. Wow. Sure. I, why, why not wait? We got other yeah. other things to write. Oh, jeez. Mm. Oh, that was just an incredible time. It, it went like that. I grabbed Lisa one day, and I believe there's such thing as energy pockets. You know, mm-hmm. places where people mm-hmm. have played something on guitar that was so powerful that it leaves an imprint of some kind in the air, you know. Mm-hmm. So I found a little spot and Lisa and I sat down and I, I said, just play with just play along with me till I find out what this is about. And I, I was thinking about a waitress somewhere. <laughs> so I started doing this thing and I said, She's over she's over on the Asheville, maybe somewhere, like in North Carolina, Carolina, or at a diner or something like that. And an hour and a half later, we were putting we put down Maggie's Dream. Maggie's Dream. Mm-hmm. So Lisa sang harmony and played violins on that. See, uh-huh. that's where she came in. She was, and it was working like gangbusters. And they came in the next morning. Everybody they heard Maggie's Dream, but they just went to the rooms and went <laughs> at it. You know. Oh, man. See, Russell and I were D-Day together. Don and Russell, I come in, and they wrote Old School for John Connolly. 
Yeah. There's a bunch of that going on. So here's what happens. 1985, four and five, I was runner-up for songwriter of the year to somebody and then to Troy Seal. And it seemed like six of them couldn't, couldn't win. So I said, i tell you what, man. Don asked me, why did you go upstairs? And I said, well, I went there to find what I do and see if it's still around. I don't want to lose sight of that because I wanted to write 50% me, 50% co-writing with Don. Mm-hmm. So I went up there and started writing some major stuff, and I started doing demos with James Stroud playing drums mm-hmm. and, and Bims and Gibson Ennis, who was played with Restless Heart when he was a kid. He was monstrous, man. Mm-hmm. And a bass player from Muscle Shoals, and I was on Monday night. I'd always play on Monday night from 6 to 10, mm-hmm. and it, it became a thing in town, and people got wind of it. They didn't want just a song. They wanted to copy the whole session. Mm-hmm. And I had a, had an inverse echo unit flown in. I could lay she and I on them and tell Gibson I want that ding, ding, bop, bum, 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 let Sting does. Mm-hmm. So they jumped over that, and I said, James, I'm, you know, I'm to bop, and I we were on she and I, and we cut the track and had the vocals on it. You, you sang vocals with me mm-hmm. on the lead vocal in 45 minutes. And they, they, can't, they couldn't recut it. They could take forever and never, never make as good as that demo. Yeah, and the demo process, that, that's where you, you love to be, is in the studio doing the demo, because that's where you create it from nothing, right? Right. You know, Dave, you are an insanely gifted producer, and yet you didn't go into major label production, which you very well could have. Uh, you're better than most any producer I've ever known. Well, I'd have, I'd have done things a lot differently. Yeah, you did. And and you really love the creation process, don't you? Oh, God. Yeah. When I knew that Stroud and him were coming. It was Stroud, and then it was uh, then it was Larry London, wasn't it? Yeah, Stroud or London won. Mm-hmm. And uh, Larry would come because it was a test. The charts were hard, you know. Yeah. And the way I wanted to lay them out was difficult as well. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, something, Judy, people don't realize this about how good the musicians are in Nashville. Mm-hmm. If you've got major, major chord changes and stuff, they can do it on the spot. Mm-hmm. And I did what I did was I would run the verse and be sure the tempo was right. Mm-hmm. And then I would do the B sections for about two, two three times until I got tired of it. And then I'd do the chorus two or three times so I got tired of that. Then I'd go back to the top and say, count it off. And so then when they came in with the first half of the verse, they would go to the B section and the graph would just go up a little bit and then go up (laughs) further with the chorus Mm because they'd played it three times or so. They were ready to go. And you weren't a fan of doing it three billion times. No, you can't do a song over three three times. <laughs> we never did them over, tw- but twice. We figured out what was wrong with it, and we'd play that little part, and then we'd cut it again. <laughs> she and I, we'd cut the second take. Oh, so, man. well, we did, because they, they're that good if people would understand that, yeah. you know. There's something really, really unique about cutting a song for the first time, recording the track and putting it all together the first time. And you, you're the magician. Yeah. Let me say this about that. I'd have uh, three and a half songs and it'd be Thursday. Mm-hmm. And I was cutting on Monday night, so I had to pull this off the next day or so. And I'd work on 
the fourth one on the weekend so I, I could get it. But it was amazing to me creatively to come down on Monday night and have some, have food and drinks for the players. And they knew when they walked in, they were going to have a big time. That was the kicker. They were going to have a big time. <laughs> yeah. Because we're going to play some charts that are hard. And I'm going to yell and scream at them and say, hey, can you not play this? But you, oh, God, just oh, but Some people would even cancel master sessions to come and play your demos, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It was such a joy, you know, they're creating too. But but to come in a room and listen back to one of your kids, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, played just brilliantly by these boys. It, it just blew me away. Sometimes if you feel something so much, it pins you to the wall like you got stakes through you, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, gosh, that's just too too good. Yeah. And you had you had a synergistic working uh sort of flow with musicians and with particular engineers that you loved working with, right? Steve at MCA, Steve, yeah. what was his last name? Steve, Steve day, Steve day. Sure. And, and then, and then Dave Matthews at studio 19. Yeah. Steve day used to just fry his mind. <laughs> you know, he was so, he was such a humble guy. Yeah. yeah. We'd, we'd uh, cut some like time doesn't matter. And it just, it ran the guys out of, out of the studio. They had to go outside for a second. <laughs> and I said, where's, where's everybody? He said, they said they were going to go outside for a minute. Uh, I said, okay, when they come back, we'll do she and I. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so they came back in and we said, I said, boys, I'm going to cut it. An eighth note program. And Strad, look, we're going to gate the kit and uh, do this inverse echo thing. I've flown in here. And he, he just flipped out. He said, right, right on. Let's do it. <laughs> Yeah. So to get to the finale of the six of us in 86, mm -hmm. I won a songwriter of the year and our, our little company of six people won the publisher of the year. <laughs> we, we had 16 number one records oh, and tree had six. That's as close <laughs> as they got. Hell, I had six, you know, <laughs> yeah. and Don, I think Don had five. <laughs> So I went to the award show. Mm -hmm. They were putting the songs up, and I had seven. And I said, well, I, if somebody's got more than that, I, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. But <laughs> it wasn't even close this time. <laughs> now, here's a, here's a kicker for you. Don was songwriter of the, year, the next three years. So that was what we were working oh with. Oh, my you know? gosh, yeah. But two of us were going off the, going off the rails, yeah. you know, just writing every day, something every day. There would be weeks when we would have – Three songs that would be cut by people. It would be unbelievable. We'd write them and ship them out. And people were yeah. just waiting to hear what we were doing. But the thing about the publish year thing, I made a little speech and told them we had six people. And I know that you can do that with six people or ten people or whatever. If you write, play, sing together and have this synergy as you're going, going on around mm -hmm. you, that you can uh, have small numbers if they all do their thing. And so, Amy, this piece of publishing here, glass, I walked off the stage and handed it to Leeds. Leeds Levy, uh-huh. Yeah, that was three three years to the day almost when I told him, give me the building <laughs> and I'll give you that. And I handed it to him and he said, he said, Logs, that's, that's terribly impressive. I said, I, I think so too. I think these people, these people right here are impressive. That's all my, all my group. Well, it sure was unique to have that 
like you say, sort of a oneness with the company. A lot of times it's just like a bad writer's round where everybody's sort of individually over in their own chair doing their thing, hoping it's better than the next person, and there's no synergy. Yeah, but that, that creates negative vibes and negative energy, for that matter. Oh, yeah. In our building, there negative energy was not allowed. It was not allowed. No. <laughs> Well, let me ask you now, and, and we're going to get back to songwriting in a second, but I want to talk about how we met at Kelso's, because you were still singing, too, and you were doing jingles. And I got called for this session and didn't know who you, I had not met you yet. It was pretty soon after I'd moved to, to Nashville in 1980, and must have been 82 or something like that. But it, Kelso Hurston, and uh, I think it might have been Sound Shop. Or, no, it was over at Woodland. Was it? Okay, yeah. okay. See, you don't even remember. <laughs> no, well, I'm deleting ex- extra memory to make room for new, okay. I think. That's my story, and I'm sticking mm-hmm. to it. But anyway, when I first heard your voice, I think I actually said to you, Dave, are you from Memphis? Yeah. Because <laughs> I'd missed that soul. I'd missed that resonance in Nashville that I had you know, known in Memphis. And there you were, and it was like... I don't know where you're from, but I think we're brother sister here. Well, we're we're definitely soulmates, you yeah, know. Yeah, for sure. Because I said something like we were playing his R and B thing. And I said, "Oh, baby," and you went, "Oh, oh, baby." Yeah, I think it was a Chaka Khan song. Yeah, I said, "Babe, Judy, you're somebody who really sings and doesn't think about it," <laughs> you know. And then I got to work on your songs at MCA. I got to. Uh, do background vocals with you and it was like creating rich dark chocolate pudding every time we did it it was just so well the fact gorgeous. is i could when i do a session and i was doing background vocals i think that this would sound better if judy and i just did it and, and swapped parts <laughs> you were you were like uh infectious you know your your the way you sang just you had there was you put your heart and soul in somebody else's tunes it was like Wonderful. Oh, and I'll thank, I'll thank you for that. Oh, Dave. Uh, talk about creating this little art song that became Winona's Step Out single. Talk to me about She Is His Only Need. I played for Gibson. He said, you weren't going to record that? I said, well, should I? And he said, I guess. So so we did we record it one night. And Larry Dunder walking in the studio said, it's only money, man. It's only money. <laughs> that, that beautiful Meaning thing. He didn't, he didn't yeah. see it as a hit either. So yeah. I did that. I think it was 88, 9, because I took a little time off after the publisher of the year thing. Mm-hmm. I, I was exhausted. So I, I cut that with some other stuff, and, and I wrote it at the house, at my little condo. Every morning I get up and have coffee. Then I'd sit, open the front door, and look out the door at these cows across the, in the field. Just <laughs> nature, you know, and trees, wind blowing. And I just sit there. I thought I had an idea. Billy was a small town owner. I don't know where that came from. But when I got <laughs> him down, I had to find her. And to me, I, I was just interested in making the song perfect. As with all of them, you know, yeah. lyrically, melodically perfect. And actually, do you see that song was in the catalog when uh, Y came over with Tony and they came up to my room. What I did was I sent word out that we're going to have y'all come listen to our songs because we're the best there is. It, it sounds like <laughs> ego, but it's not. It's just 
Is that was pretty much, you know, at the time. <laughs> so everybody liked to yeah. get out of their office. If you, you can believe that. Tony said, man, yeah. I, I love mm-hmm. it. Cause he can come out and drive over to somewhere else. Instead of sitting in that room, Dolly came over, Waylon came over, a whole <laughs> bunch of people came in there. It was great. Buffett came yeah. up one time. This song sounded great, but I didn't have any word. I didn't think anybody would do it. And I had it in the catalog. I started. Now, that happens with things sometimes, you know. They write themselves almost. You're, you're just there as a vehicle to just move them along, and you don't have a clue where they came from. <laughs> and I didn't. I knew when they were right going down, you know. Brad and Julie Daniels were working for us as a pluggers back then and brad always liked that song so when they came over brad and julie were up there to find uh, my office to figure out what why i was looking for and she couldn't tell you what she was looking for they'd listened to about three thousand songs or something and, and there were songs and yes but they weren't something different Right, and this was really yeah, important oh God, for her yes. because this was the first song after the Judds uh, were over when she yes. went solo, and she had to find something that would actually introduce her to the world as just a solo act, Winona. Yeah, this was one of my more proud moments to have that record. You know, I played her eight songs, the best best song we had, and she gives me this. She just took her hand and waved me off after about seven, eight bars. You know how much I like that. <laughs> Ugh. And Brad says, I know what she wants. What? <laughs> and he goes and gets a song, comes up and says, oh, you think so? I said, yeah. So I said, she wouldn't read anything. I said, you might want to read this because I wrote it. And I gave her a copy, a copy to Tony. I swear, when we played it, why just she just wept in her lap. And I, I thought that was just, <laughs> and Tony, Tony as well. Went, went teary-eyed, and I thought, well, what, what's happening? She said, if I, can, if I can sing this, my mother will die. I said, God, don't go that far. But she's, no, she said she really wanted to try to sing mm-hmm. that song, and I knew right then she was going to, I was on to something. And she'd call me at the house, and I'd teach her the phrases, you know. Yeah. Because you got to be able just to be a free-flow singer to to do that. Yes, because this this wasn't, yeah, this wasn't a cookie cutter kind of thing. And uh, everybody listening, uh, I know what the demo sounds like. And I can tell you, Winona copied it lick for lick. And she put the soul into it as well. It's, yeah. it's one thing to copy it, but there's another thing to put your heart in, into that. Yeah. Here's something about Miss Rodman that your people need to hear. Uh, why and I about to do the background vocals? Vocals. And you're so close to me. I said, man, we need to get Judy over. She's just, she's just down the street. She says, she said, we can, we can do them. I said, I, I can't. We really got to have that other part. <laughs> Otherwise we'll be swapping parts and that'd be too thick. And, and I was making up lie after lie. So, and I called you and I said, get here. I was thinking about get here woman. So we can put this parts on. Yeah. So you, you walk in. I said, we're, we're going to sing this. Get right here in the middle and, and sing along. So it's me and you and Y singing the background vocals. Mm-hmm. And when you were there, I was comfortable. Uh, oh, I wasn't really comfortable <laughs> with uh, just being there with Y. <laughs> you become an asset, you know, a, a serious asset to me. Well, you have always been my friend. When I won ACM New Female Vocalist that year, mm-hmm. what I remember about that of all the things that happened with that was I remember your voice in the audience yelling, 
encouraging me, you know, celebrating. Oh, we were screaming. I heard your voice. You've always been a mentor. You've been a tough room for anybody that wants to really come out with the excellence because you tell the truth. I, I remember when you told me I was, I was being a, a spectator rather than a participant in my writing and things like that. I, I would not be who I am as a creator had it not been for you in my life. Before we go, I want you to tell me what you hold priceless these days. What I hold priceless? Mm-hmm. Uh, Let's see, about 450 kids. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> That's all my songs. Oh, yeah. uh, Because they're all grown and gone. And oh. the ones that aren't, that's half of them or more have <laughs> been recorded, you know. So yeah. I don't know what's wrong with the others, but uh, I guess. <laughs> they haven't been discovered yet. It's kind of like Van Gogh. Yeah. And the, uh, <laughs> the other thing, my three boys. Oh. who I love more than life itself. And I try to see them as much as possible. If something's wrong with one of them, I'll go wherever they are, and do whatever I need to do, kick their ass or something and get, <laughs> back, get them back in line or try to. That's what a dad does, I think. That's right. I got to say one thing, though, about your writing. Mm-hmm. I asked you one day, do you ever write? And you said you wanted to. I said, well, get on with it. And you said, you said, you said, there's something you need to know. I can be a, a B. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I remember telling you that. Yeah. And I said, well, I'll tell you something. You'll have to, to be here. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> it's got, it's a tough room. And, yeah. and honestly, it's like, get in and, and do it and, and pick yourself up and actually come out with something that's worth saying and worth writing or go home. But you did. Challenge people, not just me, but other people, and you make them come up to the plate to the best of their ability. Dave, everything I write, everything I've written since since last I've seen you even, you're part of it. In fact, you're part of my singing. I mean, all those demos that I did with you and all those melodies that you wrote, and you know, they, they're like an extension of Memphis for me. So as a musician, I really owe so much of who I am to you. Well, thank you, Judy. I appreciate it. And and you've got a little grandson too, don't you? Oh yeah, I for oh gosh, I forgot. <laughs> well, he's just me. part of your. He, he just like he's there. I'm, he's ex- there I'm excited about Christmas because of a little boy. You know? <laughs> yeah, my grandson. I we uh we all we direct all our energies. Everybody gets together Christmas Eve and that yeah. sort of thing. And we got a little one now to uh, still believe in Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. How old is uh, he? Seven. Seven. He didn't think you could get a PS5. And anytime, anytime one of them says that you can't find it anywhere, I, th- I take that as a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got a PS5 yeah. up at the house that's being wrapped. Well, I didn't. One other thing I didn't mention was you were inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1995. But even Na- that and 96. your Grammy Award, 96, okay. Yeah. Even that and your Grammy Award and all of the things. Oh, we didn't talk about, you know, how you had a number one song as a singer on a song you didn't write with Ann Murray. We won the uh, duo of the year yeah. against Kenny and Dolly and we and William. Yeah. And I didn't even have a record deal. <laughs> yeah, I remember. <laughs> oh, I remember. Ann calls me at the studio and said, hey. I want you to come to Toronto and sing with me. I said, when do I have to be there? She said, this afternoon. I said, yeah, <laughs> well, I, I'm going to have to, y'all have to <laughs> have me a ticket, you know, I'll have to go home and get some clothes. 
<laughs> so I did, and I went down and got the song, the famous or whatever, and, and oh, flew up, God. did it, boom. What a life. Yeah, it's just incredible. So. Oh, that she is, she is his only need was up for song of the year. Oh, that's right. She is his only need. Yeah, sure. But I, di- I didn't go because Vince, uh, Vince, being ever so talented, became a very, very good songwriter. And he had, uh, I Still Believe in You, I think was the song. Ah. And I, I knew that I'd get block voted in L.A. <laughs> I'd get block voted three times uh-huh. out there already. Uh-huh. <laughs> that block vote thing can, yeah. Well, you know, the real award is how long the music lasts in an, and people remember their lives by it. So in that, in that sense, you, my friend, are priceless. And your songs, your children, <laughs> your, your song children and your real children are priceless. Well, thank you, Judy. But I got to tell your your audience this: you went from writing when you started writing. It didn't take you but a couple of years to go to one way ticket and wrote one way <laughs> ticket for Leanne Rhymes. Get out yeah. of here! <laughs> yeah, with Keith Hinton, and and uh, that was a surprise. That was a surprise, but you had taught me to know when it, at least it was good. You can't know if it's going to be a hit, but you know if it's going to be good. How to yeah. think about it. Yeah, and I wanted to keep it, but you know, it's like it's like you say about songs being children; they kind of go their own way, and and you have to sort of let them go <laughs> where they want to go. And this one wanted to go to Leanne Rhymes. Well, trust me, they will find their own way. Fully anticipate your uh, catalog, which have yet to go to the number one spot to be rediscovered. Uh, anybody out there that's interested, you might want to look into Dave Loggins' catalog, which is where? Where is your catalog now? Uh, universal. Universal. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again so much for this conversation, which joins all the other ones we've had and being so precious to me. Well, thank you, Judy. Thanks. Thank you, dear listener, for joining me for this special interview. You can find Dave Loggins' songs we mentioned on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you go for music. Find me, as always, at judyrodman.com. See you next time for All Things Vocal, the podcast for singers, speakers, vocal coaches, and studio producers, and yes, songwriters.